you will take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse 35 to the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew somewhere around you, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 is on page 961 of that Bible toward the end of the page. This whole chapter is on resurrection. There are those who are denying the whole concept of bodily resurrection, and as you will recall from last week or just from your own reading, Paul says that if there's no resurrection at all, then Jesus isn't raised. And if Jesus isn't raised, then we who believe in Him are hopeless and helpless and pitiful. But he says Christ has been raised from the dead, and he continues to speak of the implications of that here in the last half of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 35, this is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Oh God, would you now meet with us by your Spirit, through your Word, and speak to us. Give us hope and help and strength through your Word. Open our eyes to see it. Open our minds to understand it. Open our hearts to receive it. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen. As Christians, we are called to serve God, to be loyal to Him, to do His work, whether that is through our work, our vocations, uh, in our families, inside the church, outside the church. We are called to serve. But as I'm sure we could all testify, those of us who have sought to serve the Lord will say, Serving the Lord ain't easy. Serving the Lord comes with difficulty. We may be ridiculed or hated for our worldview. The neighbor whose yard sign says that they support all religions would gladly see our faith obliterated from the face of the earth. People may take advantage of us when we're generous toward them. We can face discouragement as we teach the Bible, but we don't see any fruit. It can seem like our evangelistic efforts are completely useless because every gospel conversation we start gets shot down or it just gets politely endured and then dismissed. Here on Father's Day, I'm sure that many of you as fathers along with me would recognize that there are seasons in life when as fathers, as we seek to disciple our children, there are these seasons of apathy or resistance or rebellion. Serving the Lord in our families is difficult. And when it's especially hard, there are particular temptations that we face. And I just thought about this. What are the temptations we face? And I came up with four. You can probably come up with more. But one of the things I think we face is the temptation to quit just to throw in the towel, just to give up, just throw it into cruise control and get through life, just be concerned about my own spiritual life and about nobody else's anymore. Stop putting yourself, Toby, in positions where you're going to be discouraged. We can also face the temptation to discontentment. Oh, we're going to keep serving, but we're going to complain as we do. We're going to criticize others. We're we're going to be easily angered. That's what happens when you get discontent. Your complaining goes up. And the time it takes for you to get angry goes down. 
we can also face the temptation to become apathetic. Our passion for God and for serving Him can diminish. It leads to laziness. It leads to hopelessness, wondering if, if, if anything I do actually matters. Or it could lead to compromise. I mean, when I'm tired of the opposition of the world and of those I love, one of the things I can do is just adapt my worldview. Just change what I'm doing, change what I'm saying. Compromise. And actually, that's what's going on in Corinth. The pressure of the outside world, the wisdom that swirls around on the streets of Corinth is so great that these folks are like, this is really appealing. I'm kind of tired of being just standing out here. Because you notice they're just going along with the world. When it comes to sexual morality or, or when it comes to how you solve your problems or when it comes to a whole host of things. Worldly wisdom seems to be rather the smart way to go, so they compromise. I wonder when serving the Lord gets hard for you, which of those temptations may be most likely? The temptation to quit? Temptation to discontentment? Temptation to apathy? Temptation to compromise? How do you avoid those things? How do you keep from going down those paths? Because they're all destructive paths. None of those lead to honoring the Lord. How do you avoid them? Well, actually, I think this portion of 1 Corinthians helps us. Paul gives us such a perspective that if we will gain this perspective, if we will adopt this perspective, if we will take it on, it will change the way that we serve. He tells us because Christians will be raised by God, we must persevere in faithfulness. Because Christians will be raised by God, we must persevere in faithfulness. You see, it's because of who God is and what God will do, particularly in raising our bodies from the dead in the promise of the last day. It's because of that that we persevere now. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Now let's consider what he shows us. Most of this section is about our resurrection. Okay? He just has one line at the end about our need to persevere. But everything in the whole chapter is leading to that. But we're going to spend most of our time thinking about our resurrection. First of all, to see that in our resurrection, God's power is revealed. God's power is revealed. Paul begins in verse 35 with a sarcastic question. This is not an innocent question. This is not a genuine question. This is not someone raising their hand and saying, I'd really like to understand this this resurrection business uh, a bit more. And you know that because of the way he responds to them. So they ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I mean, how is resurrection even possible? What kind of body can come from a pile of bones and dust? And Paul says, you foolish person. Now, that's not always the best tactic when someone begins to oppose the doctrine that you are presenting. 
However, it is spot on here because when Paul calls them fool, this person a fool, he calls them a fool in the same way the Old Testament uses the word fool. This is not someone who has taken leave of their senses or someone who is unintelligent. This is someone who denies God, who ignores God, who forgets God, who leaves Him behind. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And in Paul's mind, that's the only explanation for a question like this. You have to, if you're going to deny the resurrection, you deny the fact that God is actually God. You deny His power. And yet he tells us that in our resurrection, God's power is revealed. And he gives an illustration of this. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So what Paul does is he takes them by the hand and he says, look, let's walk out of the cemetery and let's walk over here to this wheat field. And I want you to look out here. Now, I want you to tell me, how did all of those stalks of wheat come to be? And you can imagine this person who's grown up working the fields thinks Paul is outside his mind. Everybody knows how this kind of thing works. You plow the land, you put down the seed, and up comes the stalk. What rock have you been living under, Paul? But then I imagine Paul would grin and say something like this. So you're saying a seed goes into the ground, but it comes up as a stalk. It comes up as something completely different. How do you suppose that happened? Verse 38, God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, God made it happen. God made the seed into a stalk. It was God's power that did that. I mean, you remember that that parable that Jesus tells about the farmer in in Mark chapter 4. It says he goes out and he plants his seed and he goes to sleep and he gets up and boom, there's a crop in the field and he has no clue how it happened. And Paul's saying, I know how it happened. God gave it that body. God did that. God's power makes each seed come up as a specific kind of plant. Tomato plants, corn stalks, sunflowers, apple trees. And the same, that same God has power over everything. So he goes into the whole animal bit. Maybe when you read that this week, you're like, well, how do we get from, 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 from wheat to animals and fish? I mean, does this mean fish are going to be resurrected? What does that mean? They did the goldfish that we put down that garbage disposal. That thing's coming back, it's not going to be happy. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's just saying that God gives bodies as He chooses. He gives animals one kind of body. He gives people another kind. He gives birds another kind. He gives fish another kind. Then he goes on, he says, there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. And actually, it's not just that the bodies are different, it's that the glory is different. There's different glory for the sun. And all of this is determined by God's power. God makes all these things as they are. God gives the glory as it is. I mean, last Sunday night, Susan and I went to visit little Annabelle uh, Nastase in her hospital room. And, as we, and then we saw her parents as well. That's the order. You go to see the baby and then to see the parents. And so as we were talking with Nick and Allie, we sat and we, were, we talked about the wonder 
and the glory of the whole process of pregnancy and birth. Who made it that way? God. God did that. And if God's power does all of this with all of the animals and all of the sun and and the stars and the moon and all of the glory and all of the bodies come from God, surely His power can raise and glorify these bodies. So he goes on in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection. He connects all of that talk about animals and stars and sun and glory. He connects it all to the resurrection of the dead. This is where he is driving. God's power did all that. God's power can do this. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, the bodies that God has given us are incredible. Our bodies have self-healing capacities. You get a cut... You don't have to go through some kind of process to make sure that you get a clot to stop the blood, stop the blood from coming. Our bodies do that. We have this incredible supercomputer between our ears. We have the capacity to create things of great beauty. These bodies, these minds are incredible, but listen to how Paul describes them perishable, dishonor, weakness, natural. You see, looking at them from the perspective of eternity and not time, it's just like a seed, like you go to Home Depot, you get those little seed packets and you shake it. That's just a whole bunch of people in there. I mean, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? But that's just what he's saying. He's saying your body is just like a seed. That's all it is. You look at it, it's not much of nothing. You hold a seed in your hand, it doesn't look like anything. And yet we we are in awe of the human body, aren't we? We are in awe of what it can do, what it can create, how it can heal, how it can think, all of these things. How I can communicate right now and you can process and communicate and understand exactly what I am saying. It is absolutely phenomenal. And yet, seed. God's power will take that seed and sprout it into something greater. Imperishable, he says. Spiritual, meaning supernatural. Marked by power. Marked by glory. With a glory that surpasses this body in much the same way that when you stand before a humongous oak tree, it surpasses the glory of the acorn you can hold in your hand. God's power. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your own power. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing. Nothing. Our resurrection reveals God's power.
Secondly, in our resurrection, God's purpose is accomplished. Paul shows us the purpose behind God's power. What is God's power working toward behind raising these bodies? And it's summed up in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. Now, in many ways, verses 45 to 49 just kind of tease out what Paul said back in verses 21 and 22 when he said, you know, all in Adam die, all in Christ shall be made alive. And here we have these distinguishing, this distinction between Adam and Christ. Well, yeah, he's a living, Adam's a living being, but Christ actually gives life. Adam is of the dust. Christ is of heaven. And this kind of distinction separates Adam from what he, who he calls the last Adam, Christ. So Adam was the head of the human race, and we are like Adam. We bear his image. We follow in his sinfulness. Our bodies are like his. They are natural. They are earthy. They are dusty. And Christ is the last Adam, the greater Adam, of the head of a new humanity. So when Christ rescues a person, when He saves us, He makes us part of this new, spiritual, heavenly humanity. And the full distinction between Adam and Christ and the man of dust and the man of heaven will be seen at the resurrection. At the resurrection. You see, the Bible actually says that all people will be raised. Paul is focused on Christians here because he's battling uh, a, a, a wrong understanding of the doctrine of Christians being raised from the dead. But, but Jesus is very clear in the Gospels that all will be raised. The difference is all who are in Adam, all who have rejected Christ, will be raised to enter eternal judgment. And all who are in Christ will be raised to enter eternal life. So, when God raises the bodies of Christians and glorifies them, they won't just be better, okay? Don't think Toby 2.0. All right, that doesn't actually get us very far if you say Toby 2.0 or you 2.0. That's not what we're talking about here. What Paul says is not that we will be made a better version of ourselves, but we will be made like Christ. Like Christ. And actually, that is how I know that in our resurrection, God's purpose is accomplished. Because God's purpose is bigger than your forgiveness. God's purpose is bigger than reserving a place for you in heaven. God's purpose for us as Christians is to glorify Jesus by being like Jesus. Now, how does that work? Well, I want you to imagine a young man who's playing soccer, all right? He's playing in his backyard. He's playing at the park in the neighborhood. He's playing on every team he can possibly get on because he wants to be like Lionel Messi. All right? He wants to be like Messi. And so he practices, he practices his French accent. 
He practices his dribbling. He practices his scoring. He practices his mannerisms. He practices all of it. And the more and more that he plays, the more and more he becomes like Messi. But the more and more he becomes like Messi, who actually looks greater? Messi does. Because he's the one who had the power to reshape this whole young man's life. To become like someone is to glorify them, to lift them up, to exalt them, to make them look great. And as Christians, God's purpose is for us to be more like Jesus. So in this life, we seek to trust Him like Jesus did with our lives. We seek to obey Him. We seek to love God and love others as Jesus did. We seek to hate sin as Jesus did, and on and on. And as we grow in these things, we glorify Jesus. The more that you and I are like Jesus the more we glorify Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just glorified because we sing about Him. Jesus is glorified because we seek to be like Him. And in doing that, we lift Him up. We exalt Him. We say, hey, hey, you want to know who's great? Jesus is great. That's what lives that seek to be conformed to Jesus do. And everything in this life, including suffering, is ordained by God to help us become like Jesus. So Romans 8 says, those who love, those, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For them, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is God's purpose. Glorify Jesus by being like Jesus, being conformed to, this Im- to His image. But you and I both know we ain't never getting there in this life. We're never crossing that finish line to be fully like Jesus. But here's the thing. God will accomplish the purpose that He set out to accomplish. That verse said He predestined it. That means it's written in permanent marker. It's set in concrete. If God fails to accomplish this purpose, He fails to be God. So God will raise our bodies, glorify them so that we are made like Jesus, both with character that conforms to His and bodies that are like His resurrected body. Everything will... I mean, we'll still be... I'll still be me, but I won't be me anymore. I mean, I will be like Jesus, with a body like His. 1 John chapter 3 says, Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Our bodies will be the same kind of body that He has. Our character will be perfectly conformed to His character. And what will that do? It will show how great Jesus is. He's the great one. Let all the other names fade away. He's the great one. You know, the name that comes up, I'm only doing this in my head, but the name that really comes up over and over again in the book of Revelation isn't the people who are made like Jesus. They're all in crowds. This mass of humanity the name that reverberates is the name of Jesus. He's the one. Our resurrection 
means that God will accomplish His purpose. That is why when we stand in, next to the grave of the loved one we are burying who believed in Jesus, we grieve with hope. With hope. Because God will accomplish His purpose to make them like Jesus. Third, God's promise is kept. God is a God who keeps His promises. What He says He'll do, He does. And one of God's promises is that all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have childlike faith, who are born again, will enter the kingdom of God. All of us will. But Paul, but Paul says there's a problem. Look at verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. These bodies, as they are, aren't built to last in an eternal kingdom. Trying to enter an imperishable kingdom with these perishable bodies would be like a fish trying to live outside of water. It just ain't going to happen. You see, when we are saved, our bodies, our soul is made right with God. We are cleansed of sin. We are justified in His presence. But we still live in these bodies that are tainted by the curse of sin. And this is a problem. Because, we, because God promised us an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. And even right now, trusting in Jesus, you are not fully ready for that final kingdom. You're promised that kingdom, but you're not fully ready for that final kingdom. Something has to change so we can receive the kingdom promise. So, something does change. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the last trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, if you look at those verbs, you'll notice that they're all passive. We don't change ourselves, and we don't raise ourselves. God does the changing. God is preparing us for the kingdom. God does that work. Because God keeps His promise. If God says you and I will be there in the kingdom, a kingdom that expands all around the new earth forever and ever, we will be there. And God raises us and glorifies us to keep His promise. And the promise is permanent. Nothing even resembling death will be around. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death was swallowed up because Jesus was swallowed up in death for us 
and then rose from the dead with the keys to death in His hand. I'm the one who has conquered death, Jesus says. He is the one who holds the keys. So the death that He dies, He dies for us. He dies for our sin. He dies to take the punishment we deserve. He dies to take the condemnation we deserve. But when He rises, all who trust in Him can now say, along with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing left. Death can't touch me. We don't stand defeated in sin. We stand in victory. But it's not a victory we won. You see that? It's a victory He's won. And He gives it. Now, every sports fan understands this. Every single one of you who cheer for some team, you understand this. Back in October, we invited some friends over to watch the University of Tennessee play the University of Alabama in football. And we all came together with varying degrees of pessimism. And we watched this game. And when the game ended, and our score was 52, and their score was 49, do you know what we all said? We won! We won? Now, you may not know this, but I didn't play in that game. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't in uniform on the sideline. I wasn't even in the stadium. And yet, instinctively, I'm so identified with the team on the field that their victory is my victory. Because in my mind, we won. And dear friend, in the mind of God, Jesus' victory is your victory if you are trusting in Him. So in a very real way, you can say, we won. Oh, He, he earned it. He was on the field. But we won. You see, on the last day, there are really only two possibilities. Either you will be swallowed up by death, or you will come to find that death has been swallowed up for you. If you seek to go at death on your own, with your generosity and your good works and your good fatherhood and your good civic-mindedness and your religious rituals, you will find that you are swallowed up. But if you go in the name of Jesus, if you go trusting in Him, if you go, as it were, with that jersey on, then when you show up, you've won. Because He won. You've won because He's won. The swallowing up of death and the transformation of our bodies all comes back to this, that God promised the kingdom, and in our resurrection, He keeps the promise. So.
Our resurrection reveals God's power. It accomplishes God's purpose. And it keeps God's promise. Did you notice the theme in all of that? Our resurrection is about Him. His greatness. His majesty. His sovereignty. His power. His awesome might. It is all about Him. And if we are to see the end of life as all about Him, how is it that you think we ought to see all of life as all about Him? This isn't how Christians think in our day. So many of us think that what we need in our lives is a little more affirmation of who I am, what I am, how strong I am, how sufficient I am, how great I am. And so we will post about it, we'll hang posters about it, we'll say it to one another, we'll just have a mutual admiration society and pat one another on the back and tell one another how great we are. But if you read 1 Corinthians 15 correctly, what we are saying is so great, Paul says perishes. And we can't do anything about it. You see, there were Christians in the Bible who thought that way, who had a kind of mutual admiration society. They lived in a city called Laodicea. And Jesus Jesus says He can't stand the taste of the way that they are living. Why? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the self-affirming attitude actually wasn't a great achievement in Jesus' eyes. It was a great failure. It wasn't a sign of strength, but of weakness. It wasn't a sign of spiritual maturity, but deadness. So friends, don't fall for it. Take a page out of Paul's book and see all of your life as that which does not esteem you, but esteems God. It's all about Him. Him. And because it's all about Him, and because of His power, and because of His purpose, and because of His promise, lastly, God's people must persevere. Now, verse 58 is the conclusion not just of our text, but of the whole chapter. What are the Corinthians to do with all of this? What are we to do in light of Jesus' resurrection, in light of His power, and His purpose, and His promise? Well, there are lots of things we could say, couldn't we? We could go to other places in the Bible and talk about hope in the face of grief and hope in the face of suffering, and we could speak of how this maybe helps us deal with anxiety or worry or fear, this realization that God, the sovereign God, is God over the last day, so He's God over all of the days leading up to that last day. And very often, when we speak about resurrection, we wrap up in it like a blanket, don't we? And we find comfort there and warmth there and a place to rest there. And that is good and that is right, but that's just not what Paul does here. He does it in other places, but he doesn't do it here. Here, the, the resurrection is not a blanket. It's a slingshot meant to send us out into serving 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It doesn't just give bright hope for tomorrow. It gives strength for today. You see, as the wind of doctrine blows one way and another, and as the culture shifts and sinks and strives to defeat us, Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable, don't give in a single inch. We must not move from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We must not loosen our grip for a moment on the Word of God. We must not do it. Why? Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and He promises that we will be. The last day is in His hand, so this day is in His hand. And as our efforts to share the gospel and disciple our children and teach the Bible are opposed or seem fruitless, as the, as the land where we cast the seed, as it were, still looks barren, we do not give up. We redouble our effort. We know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. God will have the last word. God will have the last word. Many of you will know the name George Mueller, a man who served the Lord in England, ran orphanages, uh, uh, promoted the publication and spread of the Bible, preached the gospel, all kinds of things. Well, there was a set of friends that George Mueller prayed for all his life to be converted, and they continued to resist the gospel. He prayed for one man, uh, I read, uh, 63 years and eight months prayed for him. Went, he died with his friend not believing. Sixty-three years his friend resists. Sixty-three years and eight months his friend has no interest in the Lord, doesn't want to hear the gospel. But the story goes that as Mueller's casket was lowered into the ground, his friend fell to his knees and said, God, have mercy on me. God has the last word. Don't give up praying. God has the last word. Don't give up discipling your children. God has the last word. Don't give up on that coworker. God has the last word. Don't give up on your friend. God has the last word. Don't give up on that adult child who has moved out and you feel like you have no ability to influence anymore. God has the last word. You stay faithful. You abound in the work of the Lord. You have the settled knowledge that everything that you do means something even if you don't see the meaning. You will keep going. God will have the last word. So when serving is hard and friends cut you off and children are unresponsive, when neighbors ridicule you and bosses pass over you for a raise because of your faithfulness to the Lord, how do you avoid quitting? How do you avoid discouragement? How do you avoid apathy? How do you avoid compromise? Remember that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead which promises that you will be raised from the dead and God will have the last word. Remember that nothing will stop God's power. Nothing will thwart God's purposes. Nothing will keep God from, from keeping His 
promise. So we must persevere. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, stay steady. Isn't that what he's saying? Stay steady. Stay steady is not a means of sitting in your hammock and waiting for death to come. Stay steady does not mean we throw it into cruise control. Stay steady means we stay steady in faithfulness. We stay steady in service. We stay steady in labor, knowing it's not in vain. Stay steady. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace that we might do that. We pray, God, that you will keep us steady. That the fact that you will have the last word, that you have demonstrated your power over death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you promise it to us. You promise that you will have the last word on us, on these bodies, on our eternity. May that great hope of the future give us great strength for today. And help us, Lord, to stay steady. That in the days when things are going great and the things when everything seems to be falling apart, we will stay steady. When we are opposed by the world, we will stay steady. When we don't see the fruit of our labors, we will stay steady. When we wonder if anything we do matters, give us grace to stay steady. To know that in the end, it will be well with our souls. And with that knowledge, we walk into this day ready to serve you. Do it, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to sing in just a moment, and then we'll be dismissed. Sing a hymn that reminds us that whether peace...